This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. Today we have new plays and a rainbow. And we have three quite different musicals. Hi, I'm Bob Wilcox. And I'm Jerry Kowarski. Come with us to the theater and we'll tell you what we've seen from our two seats on the aisle. Welcome to Two on the Aisle, the podcast, produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Aisle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently on the internet. This podcast is from episode number 532 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, July 18th, 2019, and features reviews of the following plays. Candide at Union Avenue Opera by Leonard Bernstein, the Labute Theater Festival Set 1 at the St. Louis Actor Studio, Mamma Mia at Take Two Productions, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough at the Independent Theater Company, and Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella at the Muni in Forest Park. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Jerry Kowarski. The playing of the overture seemed cautious to me on opening night of Union Avenue Opera's recent mounting of Leonard Bernstein's Candide. That will be my last complaint in this review. This Candide was one of Union Avenue's finest productions ever. The opera takes its name and its story from a novella by the 18th century philosopher Voltaire. The title character is the illegitimate cousin of a baron in Westphalia. Candide leads an idyllic life in the baron's castle, where his tutor, Dr. Pangloss, teaches all his pupils that they live in the best of all possible worlds and that everything that happens is for the best. Candide is expelled from this Eden when he is discovered acting on his attraction to the Baron's daughter, Cunegonde. He's pressed into service in an army that soon ravages his homeland, upending everyone else's life. Candide, Cunegonde, Pangloss, and other members of the household try to cling to their optimistic philosophy while suffering a series of misadventures and reunions throughout the world. To my ears, the music in Candide is as great as anything Bernstein ever wrote. The show is not a success, however, in its 1956 Broadway premiere. The review in the New York Times faulted Lillian Hellman's book for being too serious. Without Hellman's or Bernstein's involvement, director Harold Prince revived Candide successfully on Broadway in 1974 with less music than before and a new one-act book by Hugh Wheeler. It was the starting point for a two-act revision for opera companies. That version premiered under Prince's direction in 1982 at the New York City Opera. The conductor of that production, John Masseri, worked with Bernstein to include the composer's latest thoughts in a version that premiered at the Scottish Opera in 1988. Still more revisions were to come from Bernstein himself and from the National Theatre in London. Union Avenue chose to present the Scottish opera version. The most famous aria in Candide is Glitter and Be Gay, in which Cunegonde struggles to come to terms with the horrendous assaults to which she has been subjected. At Union Avenue, Brooklyn Snow understood that this aria is as much about characterization as it is about vocalization. She excelled at both, 
while encompassing the aria's full emotional range. She did the same and was matched by Jesse Darden as Candide in the duet You Were Dead, You Know, in which Kunigunda and Candide reunite after a long separation. Snow and Darden got the complex tone exactly right in this fascinating number, and they were equally impressive in everything else they did. We all know what an extraordinary singer Christine Brewer is. She demonstrated that she also has a superb sense of comedy as the disaster-prone old lady whose calamities include the loss of a buttock. Thomas Gunther demonstrated remarkable versatility as Voltaire, Dr. Pangloss, and others. Costume designer Teresa Doggett cleverly made the major characters stand out by putting them in bright costumes while dressing the ensemble in white. Sierra Swayze's attractive unit set, Michael Sullivan's lighting, and Kate Slovinsky's props gave director Anna Maria Pileggi the flexibility she needed to accommodate the changes of scene required by Candide's wide-ranging travels. Pileggi and conductor Scott Schoonover were of one mind in their collaboration. The music and the staging fully supported each other. The orchestra, the singers, and everyone else on stage and off should be very proud of their work. Indeed, they should. And I'm, uh, it was a delightful evening to spend with Candide, despite all the disasters that happened to him and all the others. Uh, I was impressed with what Anna Maria Pileggi and the uh, scene designer, uh, Sierra Sweezy, it was a, really a unit set, even though it covered many places, but it was simple enough, and yet I had no trouble following it or knowing where they were. I mean, one thing, they put up a street sign to tell you where you were, but I thought that was a very good approach to this opera, not to junk it up with a lot of stuff that you don't need visually. It, it needs to have quick transitions. It's, right. it's all about brightness. And, and the performers were able to hold your attention quite well. You didn't need any other distractions for it, but they were convincing, and it all all worked quite well that way. And uh, the the chorus all in white sort of reminded me of the opera theater's production a few years <laughs> yes. ago, where everybody was in white, as I recall. It our 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 friend Robin Verhage designed the costumes. Well, let's hear some of that wonderful Bernstein music. On the evidence of Neil LeBute's latest contribution to the annual LeBute New Theater Festival, the playwright seems to be mellowing as he ages. The festival is the sampling of new short plays spread out for us by St. Louis Actors Studio. The studio's artistic director, William Roth, has developed a working relationship with playwright, screenwriter, and film director, LeBute. Each year, LeBute provides a one-act play performed at the festival named in his honor, and he joins the panel that selects six other plays from hundreds of submissions. Half of the selected plays are staged in the first two weeks of the festival, the other half in the second two weeks, with LeBute's play running with both halves. His play bears the name of an art museum exhibit, Great Negro Works of Art, 
And I haven't decided if the name mocks the political incorrectness of the curator of the exhibit or if it correctly refers to a certain historical period. The museum is visited by a couple on a first date arranged online. Jerry is white, Tom is black, and after a little jesting about their names, they look at the pictures. They discuss them carefully, guardedly. Jazz Tucker's Tom seems almost literally to be walking on eggs. Carly Rosenbaum's Jerry holds herself stiffly. Her responses are good, white, liberal ones. He accommodates. As it goes on, a little too long, a little repetitiously, they do relax some, and then it all goes off the rails. But rather gently so for Labute, and he no longer brings up his problems with Mormons. John Pearson directed. Michael E. Long calls his weird piece Color Timer. That's what Stacy claims to be at a TV editing studio. This is another first date. Aaron, a mild-mannered psychologist, and she are having lunch. She also claims to have a gun pointed at him under the table. She explains that this is actually a reality TV show to record the reactions of a person whose life is being threatened. Or is it? Colleen Backer does make Stacy appear a little unhinged with her unending flow of words and sideways glances. For Shane Signorino, how terrified should he be? He goes back and forth with the flow of her words. He's also confused by Rachel Bailey's overstressed server. Director Jenny Smith balances the tension with moments of comedy. Smith also directed Joe Sutton's Privileged. That overworked term Kafkaesque must be asked to labor again here. Of course, Privilege is set at a law firm. Peter has recently passed the bar, only to discover that he must pass another examination by a mysterious panel before he can begin his practice. We hear only the harsh voice of the chair of the panel as Spencer Sickman's Peter stands bewildered in a pool of light. Eventually, his uncle Mark, a member of the firm and helpful to a point, as avuncular Chuck Brinkley plays him, tells Peter it may have something to do with what a cousin and some friends in high school had done in severely beating a fellow student they thought was gay. Peter finds the young man, now grown, and in Shane Signorino's playing, still suffering psychological, if not physical, wounds because justice was never done to those who attacked him. They were privileged. Another cousin, Carly Rosenbaum's bitter Amy, also a lawyer, has failed to pass the panel. Is she not privileged? Is that what privilege is about, guilt by association? Or is it just the Kafkaesque, random, irrational granting of privilege to some and not to others? Washington News' Carter W. Lewis contributed, as usual, for me, the cleverest and most satisfying of the four. The title, Kim Jong Rosemary, eventually is explained. Jenny Smith plays Rhonda, a much-beset single mother, bearing her load of troubles in a very physically present canvas bag, accompanied by her teenage daughter Beth, made by Ely Hurwitz to be, as teenage daughters are, both one of the troubles and a help in bearing them. Their conversation covers those troubles and includes world-encompassing troubles as well. They're interrupted by the playwright himself, or rather herself, for Lewis is played by Colleen Backer, taking a stand behind a lectern to explain to the audience the many facets to this dialogue, both as seen in Mother and Daughter and in the wider world. 
John Pearson came back to direct this one. Requirements for submissions to the festival warn that in addition to being no more than 45 minutes long and having no more than four characters, they will be presented in an intimate theater with limited technical resources. All praise then to Patrick Huber for minimal, flexible, but sufficient sets, complemented by some striking lighting by Huber and Tony Anselmo, sound by Pearson Smith and Wendy Renee Greenwood, costumes by Megan Harshaw, props by Smith, Movement coaching by Taylor Peets, technical direction by Joseph Novak and Theater Marine, and the very efficient stage manager, Amy J. Page. More next, three new plays accompanied by Labutes. Yes, and uh, I think you have given these uh, some very uh, interesting analysis. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, they're an interesting plays, uh, so I was glad to do the analysis. You can follow all things Two on the Isle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Isle and liking the page. And you can be the first to see reviews on YouTube by subscribing to the Two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell. Again, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching for Two on the Isle. Take Two Productions is presenting Mamma Mia in the first staging by a community theater in St. Louis. I was not surprised by how fine it is, Fans of Mamma Mia have been waiting 20 years to be in this show. I'll bet they came out in droves for the auditions. Every part has a top-notch performer. The same thing happened when Take Two did the first local production of Rent at the Tower Grove Abbey. I will say of this year's Mamma Mia, the same thing I said about 2011's Rent. The show doesn't need the glitz of a Broadway extravaganza. It just needs people who have the commitment and the capability to make it work. It's clear that everyone in this production is giving their best, and they all have a great deal to give. This is clear from the first scene when Sophie Sheridan and her friends come on stage. 20-year-old Sophie is the catalyst for the action. She wants to find out who her father is before she marries her boyfriend, Skye. She identified three possible fathers when she sneaked a peek at her mother's diary. Sophie has invited all three of them to the wedding without bothering to tell her mother. Sophie and her friends are not the most important characters in the show, but don't tell that uh, Hallie Jackson is Sophie, Cammie Dumerth is Ollie, and Elise Brubaker is Lisa. All three fill the stage with the joyous enthusiasm of youth in Honey Honey. This song, like all the others in the show, is from the catalog of the Swedish pop group ABBA. The book by Katherine Johnson is based on Judy Kramer's original concept. The wedding will take place on a Greek island at the taverna owned by Sophie's mother Donna. The guests will include Rosie and Tanya, the backup singers, and the band Donna fronted before she built the taverna. The three potential fathers are Bill Austin, Harry Bride, and Sam Carmichael. It's probably not a coincidence that their last names begin with A, B, and C. Bill and Harry hooked up with Donna when she was on the rebound from a serious romance with Sam. The combination of attraction and resentment in Donna and Sam's complicated relationship is fully embodied in the excellent performances by Heather Matthews as Donna and Jonathan High is Sam. Bill and Rosie have both become authors. He writes about travel, she writes cookbooks. Mike Hulsman as Bill and Mara Bellini as Rosie 
give their characters winning personalities and capture the fun in their budding relationship. Sarah Polizzi gives the requisite flair to the thrice-married Tanya, and Scott Deggett's freeze leaves no doubt about why the good-natured banker Harry used to be nicknamed Headbanger. Jack Ryan Pate as Skye, Joey Franks as Pepper, and Rob Annis as Eddie give fine performances of the young men. Director Gary Long keeps the action moving at a well-judged pace on an attractive set designed by Bill Baustein and Josh Smith and decorated by Tom Emmons. Jen Caney's choreography and Matt Stuckel's lighting help give the show the right look. The orchestra directed by Nate Jackson and the sound designed by Kelly Ross Kerr help give the show the right sound. I wasn't a great fan of the show when it first came out, but it's grown on me over the years. That's fortunate because I'm sure I'll be seeing it again and again. Yeah, there are already other productions locally, so obviously it just uh, got the amateur rights made available. Uh, And I'm not a great fan of this. I mean, it's always fun, and I know there are people, some of them, I guess, just because they like ABBA's music. But my biggest problem with this, I think, is ABBA's music because nothing wrong with the music itself, but it's someone pretty cleverly, I think, built a book around their music and put it in. So the songs come at, at appropriate times, but they're all so much the same. Well, they don't help build the drama in it by the way they, they use the music in it. But in this production and in any good production, the performers fill that in. Well, they can't. If you don't have it there to to work with, uh, you can't totally. Yes, they tried, and they were very good performers. They they did for me. They did for you. Good. Well, uh, well, since uh, you said this is growing on you and you're stuck with it on you for a while, I guess, (laughs) uh, it's a good thing it it did work for you that way. Well, we'll we'll hear some of the, I I mean, I like Abba's music all right, so I'm willing to listen to some of it now. Some 2,500 years ago in Athens, during a sacred festival when choruses sang the triumphs and sufferings of gods and heroes, one man stepped out of the chorus and became one of those gods and heroes. No longer were we hearing about what the god or hero had done, now we were watching him do it. And that moment, we say, when Thespis stepped out of the chorus was the moment when drama was born in the Western tradition. Now the independent theater company has picked up the tradition that Thespis abandoned with their production of For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. Its author, Ntozaki Shangi, called it a choreo poem. It is actually a collection of 20 poems performed by a cast of six women. Some poems are performed by one woman, some by the shared responses of two or three more. Near the beginning, as though starting with childhood, they joined in a circle singing and dancing nursery rhymes. 
Tina Twardowski provided choreography for other moments. Kelly G. Hunter's beautifully draped and richly individual costumes flowed with the movements of the performers. Each costume displayed the color by which Shangi identified her women. The lady in yellow, the lady in blue, the lady in brown, the lady in purple, the lady in green, and the lady in red, a rainbow. In their poems, they tell of the lives of colored girls. Sometimes the performers, like Thespis, become a character, but not in a dramatic scene. Rather, they tell us what happened to them, perhaps on their high school graduation night or when somebody walked off with all my stuff, angry and funny, or when a young girl discovered a hero for herself in the library which Shanga herself did when she was a young girl in St. Louis. Many of the poems are about men, and few end happily. Men are unfaithful. They raise hopes that don't last. They break promises. They infect them with venereal diseases. The women mock the ways men say, I'm sorry, hardly meaning it. They tell of loneliness, of abortions, and they comfort one another. Near the end comes the gothic horror story of a night with Bo Willie Brown, until finally they say together, I found God in myself, and I loved her. I loved her fiercely. Akisha Lee was the lady in yellow, Chanel Quilling, the lady in blue, Chrissy Watkins, the lady in brown, Sierra K. Smith, the lady in purple, Talisha Katura, the lady in green, Yashika Stimage, the lady in red. They brought their poems to life, found the melodies and rhythms of the poems as they spoke, stood out individually and blended as a group. Brittany Henry's direction kept the stage alive and found movement and tableaus to match the beauty of the poems. Largely responsible, I think, for producing this independent offering, Henry also, with Mark Mobeck, designed, constructed, and painted the panels of the spare set, and she designed the sound. Karen Pierce designed the lights. For colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough is not a play, but it is an important and moving gem of American theater. Yes, it is, and the involvement and the execution in this production were very impressive. Yeah, yeah. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there, too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Isle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus, on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks at the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode when you follow us. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Isle. Muni Magic was even more magical than usual for this year's children's show, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. The new video screens at the sides of the stage were brilliantly used in the early scene where Prince Topher is fighting off enormous monsters. The touring productions at the Fox had nothing comparable. Nathan W. Shore's video design set exactly the right comic tone for the evening with the aid of sound design by John Shivers and David Partridge. My favorite part was when a fallen monster's head appeared in one of the screens while its feet were still visible in the other. The Muni Kids and Teens played woodland creatures with the aid of puppets designed and created by Puppet Kitchen International. Director Marsha Milgram Dodge and choreographer Josh Walden adeptly integrated the puppetry into the action. They displayed comparable mastery in the crucial transformations engineered by the fairy godmother before Cinderella goes to the ball. 
The script presented at the Muni was the one Douglas Carter Bean wrote for Cinderella's first Broadway run in 2013. Rodgers and Hammerstein created the musical for television in 1957. While retaining many traditional elements of the Cinderella story, Bean did not retain traditional gender roles. Instead, he created a prince and a princess who can be role models in the 21st century. When we first meet Prince Topher, he's a highly accomplished dragon slayer, but the usual pursuits of a prince leave him unsatisfied. He needs help to find his true path. His first meeting with Cinderella is not at a ball, but near her home, where she impresses him with how kind she is to a woman in need. Michaela Bennett's Ella was an ideal mixture of decency and determination. Jason Gautet embodied Topher's uncertainty about what sort of a king he wants to be without making him seem weak. Cinderella isn't the only orphan in Bean's script. The prince is an orphan, too. A royal advisor named Sebastian has replaced the king and queen in Oscar Hammerstein's original script for television. While rearing Prince Topher, Sebastian has been an oppressive ruler. The inequality in the kingdom has stirred up opposition led by a character named Jean-Michel. He's a rebel, but a very sweet one. Chad Burris made Jean-Michel exactly the sort of comic revolutionary needed to challenge a comic tyrant like John Scherer's puffed-up Sebastian. Jean-Michel is in love with Gabrielle, one of Cinderella's stepsisters. Only one of them is evil in Bean's script. Stephanie Gibson's Gabrielle was totally sympathetic, while Alison Fraser as the stepmother and Jennifer Cody as the other stepsister provided an abundance of zany nastiness. Victor Ryan Robertson was an excellent singer as Lord Pinkleton. Ashley Brown portrayed the fairy godmother's magic with the adroitness you would expect from the original Mary Poppins on Broadway. Music director Greg Anthony Rasson led the Muni Orchestra in a rousing account of the score in which the best-known numbers include My Own Little Corner and Ten Minutes Ago. The look of the show was enhanced by Paige Hathaway's scenic design, Robin L. McGee's costumes, Caitlin A. Adams' wigs, and Rob Denton's lighting. My favorite part of Bean's script is the loss of the glass slipper. It isn't an accident. Cinderella takes charge of her life by losing the slipper on purpose. In doing so, she sets a much better example for young women than a fairy tale heroine who just waits for her prince to come. And they, one other thing, speaking of the glass slipper, there was a little line uh, that uh, I guess Bean slipped in there saying, well, it's made out of glass and that means it can only fit one foot. Because I always wondered, he's, they're going around trying these shoes. I mean, a, a shoe would fit any number of people probably. How is that going to be just one? But if it's, I don't know, how making it out of glass makes it work better. But uh, that's that's what they said. So I'll believe it. I believed everything else about it. Why not this? <laughs> so uh, I was a, a little disappointed in the ball gown for Cinderella. It uh, wasn't the, uh, it was ver rather colorful, but wasn't the usual, you know, it's blue and white or something like that and, and a big, big full skirt usually. And I there were a number of little girls dressed that way in the audience when yes, we were there Yes, but it, too. it had to be something that could magically appear on her uh, with, with a flash of the fairy godmother's wand. I think she had a wand. In any case, it was part of the theater magic that it had to be that kind of a gown. 
Well, theater magic can do lots of things. I don't think it, uh, it had to be that color or those various colors in it or that. Anyway, I know some little girls were disappointed with how it looked. Anyway, it's uh, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, so I think we should hear them. Let's take a look at what's going on in St. Louis Theatre for the end of July and the beginning of August 2019. We'll start with the Dinner Theatres. The Dinner Detective ends its run at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Murder Mystery Dinner Show. It stops on July 27th. Murder in Mayberry at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theatre also ends its run on July 27th. Flaming Saddles will be playing at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theatre through the end of July. That's July 28th. Mamma Mia! by Take-Two Productions will be playing through July 20th. The Labute Theatre Festival Set 2 takes place at the St. Louis Actors Studio from July 19th through the 28th. Mamma Mia! at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville will play through July 21st. Footloose will be put on at the Muni and Forest Park through July 24th. The 2019 Cabaret Gala will be playing at the Cabaret Project on July 18th. Greece will play at Stages St. Louis from July 19th through August 18th. Overdone and Screaming at Optimum Pitch plays at First Run Theater from July 19th through the 28th. Jaws the Parody will be put on by Magic Smoking Monkey Theater from July 19th through the 27th. Recipes for Ice will be put on by Kirkwood Theater Guild on July 19th. The final showcase and celebration of the Cabaret Project of St. Louis will be on July 21st. Catch Me If You Can will be mounted by the St. Charles Community College from July 23rd through the 28th. The Wizard of Oz will take place at Alton Little Theater in Alton, Illinois from July 25th through August 4th. La Boheme will be put on by Union Avenue Opera from July 26th through August 3rd. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat will be put on by Overdue Theater Company from July 26th through August 4th. Into the Woods will be mounted by Coca Presents on July 26th and the 27th. Mamma Mia will also be put on by Hard Road Theater Productions in Highland, Illinois from July 26th through August 4th. Paint Your Wagon will be at the Muni in Forest Park from July 27th through August 2nd. The All Hands on Deck show will be put on by Lindenwood University in St. Charles on July 27th. Plaza Suite takes place from July 31st through August 11th by Act Two Theater in St. Peter's and Assisted Living, the musical, will be put on by Playhouse at Westport Plaza from August 1st through the 11th. We'll be watching some of these productions from our two seats on the aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts on theater in this program and for items from the calendar. Send them to to On the Aisle, HEC Media, 3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044, or by email to TOTA at HECTV.org. Join us next time on cable and the web for lots of musicals, new plays, and some silliness. We'll see you then.
This episode of Two on the Isle was produced by Bob Wilcox, and the associate producer was Jerry Kowarski. HEC media producer is Paul Langdon. Our hosts this week were Jerry Kowarski and Bob Wilcox. Television director is Rick Rebelke. Segment editors and videography by Carrie Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rod Milam. Audios by Paul Langdon. Associate producers and studio camera operators were Carrie Marks and Ben Smith. Set and lighting were by Paul Langdon, Carrie Marks, and Ben Smith. Our theme music was by Daniel McGowan. HEC technical support is by Jane Ballou. And HEC media assistant producer, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milam. Two on the Isle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Don't forget you can find all things Two on the Isle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Isle, and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Isle podcast. We'll see you next time. This is an HEC Media Podcast.